this may not be very woke of me, but um, I, I don't think gender is as big a barrier since, um, you know, we we all tend to spend, no matter what our personal inclinations, a lot of time with people of the opposite sex. I've always been um, reluctant about the trap of of the of writing a series of books about the same character. As I always say to people, if you can arrange to become a best-selling novelist, I really recommend it to you. It's great. It's a, it's a great life. Welcome back to Bestsellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And we've been gone for a while, but we're back. We are. It feels... Weird, but good. Like, I think we were gone for a bit too long, but, you know, life happens, was, work happens. I, I looked on um, the platform we use to upload these, mm. and I think, it, I think it's a year, you know. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's been quite a year again, right? So is this... <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably why it's taken us so long to get our arses <laughs> to get. Is this season three? Is that what we're saying? Do we just make it up? I think season three, season four. Like, yeah, it's a new one. Woohoo! Yeah. It's the one with the difficult narrative arc. <laughs> Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you um, a couple of episodes before Christmas. Correct. And then several more after Christmas. Indeed. Um, and so let's just do a brief, aside from it being a bit of a year, you obviously don't have to go into your entire year, but how are you at this point? Are you reading? Are you writing? Is all good? That's a really good question. I am in a reading glut, which has just been fixed by one of our bestsellers guests Yay. Uh, that we're going to record later this week um but yeah i've got some amazing books by the side of the bed and i've just not been my eyes have been really tired mm -hmm. so it's been a physical thing rather than an emotional thing it's been like i can't stare at text so i just want to stare at some nonsense on the phone and i've not really had the mental capacity to watch new stuff either so it's not just like a reading thing when it comes to watching stuff i've been very much going back to comfort movies rather than oh yeah slow horses has just dropped on apple let's see what season two you know yeah yeah I know what you mean. Lack of brain space. Yes. I kind of had a, a spurt of reading loads. Um, I kind of raced through lots of Sarah Manning's books in the last few months, who I really love as an author. Uh, and then yeah, had a massive drop off too, where I was like, I just said, I can't. It was less like that my eyes were tired. It was more that I couldn't focus on a new story. I just couldn't take in anything. It didn't even have to be that complex. It was just like, yeah, I'm not into it. I could literally kind of feel myself start a new book and then just slip away after the first yeah. few chapters which is bad isn't because then i feel like you're not being fair to the yeah. book yeah i know and you know and, um, how much hard work goes into them and it's not that they're bad books at all it's just no. my attention is scatty and let's just be clear you and i love reading mm -hmm. that's why we yeah. do this podcast so it's but i'll tell you what helped me to relax is having done last season with you a number of writers said to us that they'd had this in the pandemic didn't they yeah. so i think well if and, and writers are the most prolific readers I know. Mm -hmm. So if they're struggling, I kind of just give myself a break and I think, you know, I'll get back into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also I think, you know, 
I don't have to tell you or anybody listening, there are so many books out there. So there's so much choice. And sometimes there's a bit of that paralysis of choice. You're like, well, I don't know what to go for, actually. Um, so I've got loads uh, stacked up on my Kindle to read, but some really old books, too, that I've never got around to reading. Um, like I Capture the Castle, which I've never read before. So that's on my reading list, too. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do then, since you've mentioned that, mm. is um, let's get into episode one. Correct. Because he's a blockbuster guest I've wanted for years. <laughs> and then um, off the back end, I'll see if I can get on my hands and knees while you're listening to episode one. Have a look on the bedroom floor and I'll give you some of the books that are then piled up, ready to go. Okay, settle back. Uh, whatever you're doing, if you're walking, if you're commuting, if you're cleaning, whatever it is, really hope you enjoy this first episode back where we get to chat to Scott Chiro. <laughs> I am hugely excited to tell you that our guest on bestsellers today is somebody I've wanted on this podcast for a good couple of years. Uh, he's the author of 13 books. The 13th is the book we're going to talk to Scott Chiro about now, Suspect. And so excited that you're on bestsellers, Scott. It's a real honour to have you on. I've uh, been a fan of your work for a long time, and it's great to get to meet you and great to chat to you about it. Thanks for doing it. Well, I'm, I'm honoured to be here, so... It's it's very elite company. Um, take us back to the origin of Pinky, first of all, because I read The Last Trial, I think at the beginning of lockdown. I think we're probably going back two years for that. And yes. her, her grandfather, one of your greatest creations, is, is in that. And now in Suspect, yes. she's breaking out and she is the central character. So how did you get to Suspect from The Last Trial? Well, in, in The Last Trial, um, originally... Um, Pinky was kind of a foil for her grandfather, Sandy Stern, who's supposed to be the, you know, a lawyer's lawyer, as they say. And uh, she's everything that uh, that he is not. So he is courtly and she is brash. Uh, he is always well prepared and she's completely impulsive. He is totally reliable and she isn't. And you know, it was kind of a joke in the opening scene when Stern looks over uh, and sees that his granddaughter, uh, who's, as I say, notoriously unreliable, is actually there for the first day of trial where she's playing the role of the paralegal. But she was one of those characters who kind of demanded that her role be expanded, um, which is always, frankly, good news to a novelist when a character demands, you know, more time and space. So I'm so, really glad you said that because as a reader, when I read The Last Trial, I'm thinking, I really like this Pinky character. And um, she's like a scene stealer for me as a reader. So yes. I thought there's there's more to go with her. Was that your feeling as the creator as well? Did, did she oh. kind of demand that you put her in her own novel, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's there's always, if things are going well, a character who runs away with the book, uh, who didn't have nearly as large a role as it turns out. And it's, it's only because, uh, for, for whatever reason, she clamors from the unconscious, uh, you know, for more time and space, as I've said. So by the time I finished, um, it occurred to me that, you know, this this young woman uh, easily could support a book of her own if if I were the author uh, to be able to write it. So uh, and there were 
obviously certain challenges. The most daunting to me was that the character's 40 years younger than I am. So, uh, but I, I figured why not? Um, you know, Norman Mailer, <clears throat> in a remark I've always borne in mind, says the worst thing about being a novelist is that um, you can make a critical mistake and not be aware of it for six months. Uh, you know, you're off on a project and it becomes unworkable. And then you say to yourself, you know, why, why was I idiot enough to do this? So, um, <laughs> and certainly the idea of writing in Pinky's voice was not something that I even entertained to start with. I think it's interesting that you were saying, so do you think that the, the fact that she was or is so much younger than you currently are was more daunting than writing in a female voice? Well, I, I mean, th this may not be very woke of me, but um, I, I don't think gender is as big a barrier since, um, you know, we we all tend to spend, no matter what our personal inclinations, a lot of time with people of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, you know, obviously my, my social milieu does not include a lot of 33 year olds leaving aside, you know, my children and stepchildren. So, uh, yeah, so my exposure is limited and thus the imaginative possibilities seem limited. Can I just ask as well, I like what you were saying about how you know, that character of Pinky kind of developed herself really as a as a side project whilst you were writing an earlier book. But I kind of, I love how the creative brain works. And do you think it's fair to say that if you'd sat down and really tried to focus on the next character I want to write is going to be, it would never be Pinky because it's only when your brain is focused on something else that it allows another part of it to go off and wander and and develop something totally unexpected. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's very true. And I certainly, um, that's not what I would have conceived of. I, I it, it never dawned on me, but uh, a, a British journalist pointed out to me that I've never before written an entire novel in which uh, the, the point of view never enters that of uh, of a licensed attorney. Uh, so in, in so consistent with what you're saying, Natalie, I doubt I would have um, I, I would have wandered that far from my natural terrain mm -hmm. uh, to somebody who's who's not a lawyer. And, you know, Pinky is not. She certainly understands a good deal about the law, having dwelled in criminal courtrooms for quite some time. But uh, she's not an attorney and, you know, doesn't like to think that she uh embraces their way of thinking or being yeah once you dealt with the initial daunting aspect of dealing with a first person female character 30 years younger 40 years younger whatever you say once you've dealt with that what were the liberating aspects for you because what i think and I, you know this is another question on the list but i think this has got the potential to become a brand new hot series if you want it to yeah people people keep suggesting that to me uh First among them, uh, David Kelly, who's optioned the rights to the novel. So he, right. he would be all too happy if I wrote six more Pinky novels, because that's what David wants to do with with Pinky is turn her into, uh, you know, the lead character in a recurring limited series. Um, but, uh, you, you know, um, you sound less. I, 
<laughs> I just, I, I've always been um, reluctant about the trap of uh, of the of writing a series of books about the same character because uh, and i regard it as a trap because it really seems like you're pinning your own wings there's so much of the kind of imaginative creative exercise that natalie was talking about in first coming to terms with the character and getting uh and getting to know that person that i've i've never been sure that a subsequent book would have the same energy if i was coming back to that character um at least in the same time frame you know, I've I've written before about uh, I wrote a you know as you pointed out, Phil, to start I've um, you know I've written about Sandy Stern more than once, uh, but I've come back to him at different times in his life. Um, the same thing is true of Rusty Savage, who was the you know quote unquote hero of Presumed Innocent. Um, but you know to pick up you know with Pinky's next case or whatever it would be. Um, it, it feels like it would be limiting in terms of, you know, my ambitions as a novelist. Um, that may just, that that be a complete illusion. And I think people who write series about the same character would probably quarrel with me about this. Um, but uh, it, it's why I've never done it. I guess it's that thing where some people from other people we've spoken to on this series as well is that, some people like the rigidity of that because it means that that forces the brain then to be creative in other ways. If you've already set parameters that you then have to stick by, then again, you can kind of use that as a creative exercise. But hearing you chat there, I've kind of wondered why, and I've watched a lot of David E. Kelly series over the years as well, um, why there are always so many different characters that come into these and into your books as well, and why it can't be that you can almost you could have a pinky series, but you could have so many other different people that were actually the focus. You see, you yeah. know, you're kind of doing the same thing, but you're kind of creatively satisfying yourself too. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't answer for David, except that, you know, we've had a long running affinity for each other's work. Um, and uh, you know, the, the one thing David has said that so many narrative writers say is, you know, he just listens to the character characters speak and, uh, Certainly for me, um, I, I always think back about how I was criticized in the U.S. Attorney's Office by one of my supervisors and dear friends, uh, Dan Reedy, who looked at me once and he said, why do you have to make everything so damn complicated? Uh, you know, which is certainly not a virtue when you're trying to explain a case to a jury. But the answer is that's just the way I see the world. And uh, you know, if, if to me you'd be shrinking um, its dimensions if you if you didn't allow for the natural complications of life. But at this point, I want to just for you, Scott. I want to step in and say, whilst some aspects of the plot of Suspect, which we'll talk about in a bit, are complex, they are not complicated. This is not a difficult book to follow. You're not having to go back two pages when you're reading. I flew through this in a week. Yeah. Now this is. I, I mean, the 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 timeline basically. Um, you know, move straight forward. So there's not a lot of flashbacks, uh, which is one of the things that typically uh, confuses readers. Um, and uh, so I, I I take it for granted, you know, Phil, you asked me before about what was liberating about writing from Pinky's point of view. And uh, 
that was one of the one of the things that she's um you know she's free of the kind of complicated way that lawyers look at things she's not supposed to be a highly lettered person she's she's very bright but uh you know at the end of the last trial her grandfather has come to accept the fact that he's never going to see her reading a book um, in her leisure time. Uh, so her vocabulary is simpler. Uh, and, you know, that was, uh, that, that was both liberating and challenging in the sense that, you know, I really had to um, squash my own um, natural inclination, you know, my, you know, you know my, my my seven syllable vocabulary and uh and you know and put it and put it in her terms uh and that's you know that i, I certainly didn't think the writing was suffering for that so we should explain and scott's going to read us a bit in a second so where we join this book is that she's an investigator for a, a defense lawyer who's looking after the chief of police it's a female chief of police who's been accused of sexual harassment in order for other officers to get promoted and that's probably about as much as you need to know right scott we right. don't need to do much right. more than that no, and much. um the other thing i should just mention is that alongside that main narrative there's a subplot as where pinky lives a very buff dude moves in next door with odd yeah. nocturnal habits and she's right. very curious about him and right. you know, Right. She nicknames him in her own head uh, to TWO for the weird one. Uh, he makes no noise of any kind. He doesn't even bother picking up the mail. He's never seen in commerce with anybody in the building. Uh, and of course, it's, it's just pinky. And in part because, as you mentioned, he's good looking um, that, you know, she wants to figure out what gives with this guy. So where do we join the the book in the passage you're about to read for us? Just set this uh, well, up. actually, the passage that uh, I'm about to read uh, occurs with Pinky's first live encounter in the novel with the with the weird guy next door. But um, she's just going. She's just explaining herself to readers. Becoming a private investigator never occurred to me when I was younger. Yet, here's the truth. I love to snoop and pry. I get a butt-tightening thrill out of it. Maybe some of that has to do with how often I miss signals in the rest of life. Investigating is like being the invisible man. Not the one from the book I had to read in high school, but the old movie, somebody who can drift around and look in on people without ever really being seen. Oh, I think often, oh, so that's this chick's deal. And when I'm being a PI, I can do stuff that's hard for me ordinarily. I don't have to grope for the words with strangers because I'm there to ask, what do you know about Joe Blow or Clown Brown? I don't care about the usual judgy thoughts people have about crazy pinky because I've got a job to do. At night, I spend hours watching YouTube and visiting obscure sites, trying to master what I call the PI bot. I love the way that you can just sort of visualize her so well, just even in that passage, I think. Um, when you are starting to write a character like Pinky, does she arrive pretty much fully formed or the version that you've just read, has that gone through? Do you kind of, have you already pretty much written the whole book and then gone back and readjusted the beginning so that it sounds more like we really know her now? Once you concede um, that she is different 
by her own terms and most other people's, then you get into, um, you know, things like the thrill she gets out of being able uh, to spy on other people uh, because the truth is just what she says. Uh, she doesn't understand that much intuitively. So when she gets a chance to, you know, watch without being seen, uh, she's filling in what really are natural blanks for her. Earlier, you were saying how um, some of uh, Pinky was unfamiliar to you, like some of her lifestyle choices, some of the, the way she may speak, the syllable reduction. But there's a part in the book that relies on um, internal disciplinary hearings. Am I right in thinking that you were part of those hearings as a lawyer? Yes, um, often and from many different angles. Uh, I, uh, when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, a career that included investigating a couple of police departments uh, where excessive violence was under investigation, uh, I was hired by uh, the village of Oak Park, which joined Chicago, to investigate their police department and ended up recommending charges against two officers and so prosecuted two police disciplinary cases. Then uh, I ended up on the state police merit board, which hires and fires and disciplines um, state troopers in Illinois. And so I read many, many hearing transcripts um, in the cases of officers or troopers who were being uh, suggested for discipline. And that was, you know, our final decision. Uh, after reading that transcript as to what kind of discipline would be imposed. So, you know, I, I, I'm i not one of those people who's, you know, been a prosecutor or a defense lawyer who who thinks that, you know, he's a cop in disguise. That's that's not, I, I am under no such illusion. <laughs> I, I know cops as lawyers know cops, uh, but I do think I understand their lives and, um, you know what how police departments function the the odd dynamics within uh because um you know the, the <laughs> police officers are very much are paid paranoids they um you know they're suspicious of everybody uh and they they take no one at face value and really trust very few people outside their inner circle. And uh, and that, of course, ends up being an attitude that infiltrates police departments where, um, you know, the the officers all have each other's backs on the street. But they don't really trust each other um, beyond, again, you know, the people who've been their partners and the people who are their friends. And they're always, in my experience with them, imagining the worst about the guys on the other side of the locker room who they don't know very well uh, and, you know, thinking they've got some kind of scam running. So it's, it's, you know, it, it it's kind of amusing and, uh, but it's, it's, it's part of what makes a police officer, a good police officer that, that they don't trust many people. And with that vast experience you've had of dealing with and associating with police officers and, and experiencing the legal system in, in your country, do you feel America is any closer to seeing a police force that kills fewer of its own citizens? I, I, I actually think uh, we are. I don't know. Um, I, 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 for example, 
heard a reported piece yesterday on the local public radio station in Chicago, which says that the um, code of silence seems to be changing a little bit in Chicago and that um, there are frequently episodes where officers will um, not suffer the shenanigans of their colleagues in silence and will most often try to correct them on the scene. Um, as for example, uh, you know, one of the officers should have done with with Shaven when he was murdering George Floyd and just pulled him off and said, you know, man, you're going to kill this guy. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I, I, I think there's more of it. It's not um, all due uh, to a, you know, a spirit of idealism. Um, you know, the reality for for police officers in the U.S., just like everywhere else around the world, is everybody's got a camera. And mm -hmm. if you're going to misbehave, uh, you can't be completely sure that nobody's going to record that. So, uh, you know, some of it's a, an, an outside constraint. Uh, but I, I do think, especially among younger officers, there's less racism, less uh, willingness, uh, you know, to engage in violence just, just to get people back in line. Yeah. Um, so I mean, we should say it's not as if racism isn't a huge issue in the UK as well of course, yeah. um, and with the police force as well. Uh, but I think there are a couple of things there that sort of struck me when you're talking relating it to your fiction writing is that firstly, I think there's a really that line between loyalty versus intimidation and bullying is a really interesting one to kind of explore in fiction, but also just the that kind of notion of um well let's let's talk about that bit first and then i'll i'll talk about my second point well um you know it, cops rightly see themselves as being on a battlefield yeah. and in a and in a place like the united states where uh the number of guns in private hands has grotesquely grown uh in the last 20 years, courtesy of the idiots on the US Supreme Court, um, they view every citizen as a potential um, lethal threat. So uh, they have got to be comradely out on the street and they really do have to have each other's backs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's important in that environment that they trust one another. Uh, and you know, that's part of what breeds the the long running code of silence uh, and, you know, the blue code, as it sometimes gets called. Uh, but, you know, I hope that police officers are beginning to be able to distinguish between um, what's necessary for their own survival uh, and uh, you know, what literally obstructs justice. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I don't, I don't expect any of these problems to get solved uh, by tomorrow. No. And, uh, and when, I, when, when I, you're writing this as well, I mean, the other thing that I always find fascinating, and both Phil and I write not as prolifically, nearly, <laughs> or successfully as you, I should add. Yeah, neither of us um, have got a dagger, put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
um I, I kind of love that that notion that your you can sort of hear your legal brain throughout your prose but also being well aware that in these heightened situations that you describe and you write about in suspect and other books people don't always act rationally because you don't you can't in that situation yeah that that um I, I always thought that free market economics um, foundered um, on its base assumption that social actors uh, behave rationally because they must know different social actors than I do. <laughs> and uh, and that's why I admire the people in, you know, so-called behavioral economics uh, who will look at the choices that people make uh, and try to explain why they do things that are supposedly irrational and, uh, you know, and, you know, what the overarching value system is that somehow interfering, you know, and the, the classic example in the United States is why so many people seem to vote against their financial self-interest. Free market economists can't explain that. People aren't supposed to do that. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, there, there are values that intervene uh, that make, you know, people view their vote uh, as to some extent an idealistic statement. I want to go back to something you said a little earlier about um, the, you know, the pressure that you're under from David E. Kelly, the kind of faux pressure to, to develop this. And, you know, my greed as a fan of yours, I want more of these books. So um, if you're unsure, what motivates you to start a new book? What are you looking for to keep you satisfied? Well, in, in, you know, in the present case, the contract I signed two years ago, but uh, <laughs> got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's not actually a deadline and I have a wonderful editor, my editor, Ben Severe, and he's not going to clobber me if I don't hand the book in on time. Uh, but I'm, I'm, look, I'm a lawyer. I'm a rule follower. What, what can I say? Uh, you know, I regard it as part of my responsibility as a, you know, good, good citizen in the publishing relationship, you know, to get this book done in reasonable time. But if, so if it's not another pinky, what is it that I'm all creatively, I'm all meant, you know, what, what are you looking for to juice you up so that you go, yeah, I'm writing that. Well, I'm actually going back probably for the third and last time to Rusty Savage, who's at a much different time um, in his life. He's 75 in this novel. And at that age, taking on for the first time um, the one role he's never occupied in the legal system. He's been a prosecutor. He's been a judge. He's been a defendant, but he's never been a defense lawyer. And so now uh, because of family circumstances, he's going to be defending his first case. Sounds cool. And can I ask as well, Scott, what you're like when you're not writing? So to release it back to me, obviously, because that's the way my brain works. Um, I don't notice this, but my, my husband says when I'm not writing, I'm basically, I'm quite restless and I'm I'm way more agitated than if I'm oh. actually sort of focused on something and, and my creativity is being um is being used in that way otherwise I'm yeah I'm a bit of a nightmare yeah well I haven't asked Adrian about this but <laughs> I, I imagine that I'm easier to live with uh when I'm not in the middle 
uh, of a novel because I'm just apt to drift, drift away literally in the middle of a sentence with the thought that that's something I want to capture for the book that I'm writing on. And it's some sideways thought that that's come to me. Um, so, and, and my wife, God love her, um, is forever going, finish your sentence, finish your sentence. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about till you finish the sentence. Yeah, so. I think I get quite worked up about like society and, you know, the state of play right now and stuff. And it's like, channel it into your writing, like stop yeah. ranting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all face that challenge in today's world. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I'm listening, you mentioned Rusty just before. Um, so that will be the third um, fictional right. kind of revisit in novel form. But right. David, David E. Kelly, who's dominating this podcast um, right now, he's, uh, <laughs> he'll be happy like about that. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to David E. Kelly. He's um, currently working on the Apple TV version of Presumed Innocent, right? So how is right. that? Because obviously we've all seen. So the Harrison Ford movie was my gateway to your books. Right. right. From, that, for many people. So. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, we're going back to an era where I had to go to the video shop and rent that movie, right? And come because I wasn't yeah. old enough to get into the cinema to see it. And right. then having rented it, and and it said based on the novel by Scott Turow, I thought, who's this Scott Turow guy? Let me look this guy up and find some more books. And that was the gateway in. How are you feeling about reversioning it for TV for Apple? Well, um, you know, going back to our dominating motif, David. David told me. <laughs> um, that you know this was the best venue because uh, Apple apparently is going to be slower than the other platforms to adopt commercials. Um, they're going to be commercials running on Netflix and Hulu and or or so I'm told. Um, but uh, so I feel good about Apple, and obviously that's a pretty deep pocket. And uh, you know I I expect that to lead to um, an extremely um, well-known cast uh, although i'm for whatever reason i'm still not at liberty to say who's going to be who uh even though i have some insight into that and i think <laughs> what that's about is apple is saving it for the maximum publicity impact but you've um, been involved have you you've had a seat at the casting table oh uh, i wouldn't call it a seat i would i would say that i'm allowed to look through the window if i knock they ignore me but uh somebody will occasionally you know poke his or her head outside and say well this this seems to be what we're doing um and you know i don't um i i don't demand a large role and uh because you know, I, I when, when it comes to film projects, I regard myself as essentially a 19th century child, which is to say, I speak when I'm spoken to. And, uh, you know, David Kelly, who said with all good intentions to me, uh, you know, we can do this together when he was talking about redoing Presumed Innocent. David is famous for taking on all the writing himself. Uh, and there is supposed to be a writer's room on this project, but every script so far has come straight from Kelly. And uh, he, he will he will indulge the other people eventually. But uh, what they sh I bet you what they shoot first, uh, and I think they'll shoot three episodes first starting in January. Um, I, you know, that'll probably be pure Kelly scripts. 
that's my guess. That's just a wild guess. And so for things like that, do you, I can, I can appreciate how it's, you know, it's quite conflicting when something's being adapted into a different medium, but would you sort of have a conversation with him and provide like the overarching, this is where we start and this is where we're going to end. And then kind of not really do what you like sort of to get there, but this is how I see it happening. Or are you just like, it's fine, whatever. Well, if, if you're talking specifically about presumed innocent, there is, um, I mean, you have to start out with the recognition that this is somewhat dated material mm -hmm. because, um, you know, presumed innocent was written before the use of DNA evidence became common. And frankly, Rusty Savage with that technology would have been completely slabbed. He would have spent... <laughs> He, he would have spent, you know, the, 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 any sequels would be about his life in prison. So um, th there had to be changes. And, you know, I didn't expect David to ask me for my permission. Uh, we have a very respectful relationship. Uh, you know, years ago, David asked me to work with him on one of his TV projects. So, um but, you know, and I, I told him and I really meant it that the end of the pilot episode, the first episode, shocked even me. Uh, and uh, I thought that was one hell of an achievement. So, uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't need my guidance ordinarily. I know he's going to call me and and probably about some legal situation uh, and ask me what the alter alternatives are. And I'll be happy to answer um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think his track record speaks for itself, yeah. uh, and his instincts as a narrative writer. And, uh, he's just awfully damn good. I don't think there's anybody, anybody who writes regularly for TV, who's any better. I don't, I just don't think so. Can I ask you a selfishly motivated question? Please. Uh, so we've had Lee Child on this pod. We've had Mike Connolly on this podcast, uh, who've produced, a prolific number of books yeah um you've produced 13 and because i'm greedy i wish you'd have written more what's been the yeah. barrier um well there are a couple of barriers for one thing uh i retired from my law firm two years ago uh in august and i have found that i write faster without uh without the distraction of practicing law i still have two pro bono cases that um, do occasionally take my time, but it's, you know, it's not like having a fuller uh, menu of cases. The other thing is that my own process is slow. I, um, I don't outline to start, I grope. Uh, and, you know, I'll write little pieces of different scenes. I'll do character sketches one day. Then I'll be thinking about somebody else. And, you know, I'll do a physical description. I'll describe the general area I'm writing about and uh, literally the geographical area. Uh, and I, I give up basically a year to that process. And, uh, it, I, you know, it's not good or bad. It's It's the way I work. So <clears throat> would be very hard for me to write two books a year, given that kind of a creative process. Um, but, you know, for me, um, I think when I get to the front to back draft, 
after doing a year of that, uh, it's more coherent. Uh, and, you know, by my own lights, richer that way. And have you, I think I probably know the answer to this question already, but I assume you're somebody who enjoys working because it's that kind of balanced question, right? So when you get to a certain level of success in your career, presumably financially, you wouldn't need to keep working, you know, all the hours every single week. But are you somebody who is able to take a step back anyway and kind of spend more time with the family or put limits on the time that you work? Or were you always kind of wanting to do writing, practice law, sort of do it all? Well, I, I mean, look, there was a time in my life when, um, you know, I was practicing law but about three quarters time and trying to write at the same time. And it, it didn't seem that I had a moment to breathe. And that that slackened as the years went on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think I'm pretty good at at generally setting boundaries. Every now and then there's something I'm writing that's just coming so fast that I, I just don't want to get out of my chair. But but generally speaking, I can say I'm going to be quitting. Uh, and usually for me, a writing day begins around eight and ends um, usually by one. Um, and, and usually it can pry my behind out of the chair. Um, you know, usually it's the the obverse. It's hard. It's hard to sit there that long. Um, so when I was young and honestly, probably nothing was more responsible for driving me to law school than the fact that I suffered from what I call the writer's disease, which is I could not turn my imagination off. And um, I knew I needed the distraction of something that I found um, incredibly compelling. And that turned out to be the law. So, um, and it, in part was why I was so afraid uh, after the success of my first nonfiction book uh, to go back to writing full time because I, you know, I didn't want that ravening monster to, to, to grab me again. Um, you know, by, by now, I think uh, I can set pretty good limits, notwithstanding uh, the fact that my sentences drift off as as I'm suddenly fascinated by some bright, shiny object passing behind <laughs> my eyes. <laughs> right, well, I did kind of want to mention before we kind of get to other books that you think we should be reading, but one of the things I really enjoyed in Suspect, and I don't know if this was just me, was that I almost felt like you could see in the way that you write, you can see that practical legal brain kind of showing all the process showing how evidence is going to work showing you know putting forth an argument and then you will kind of veer off and just give us a really interesting detour into a different character's life or something and I kind of love that you could sort of follow that it's almost like a roller coaster when you're reading yeah that, that's just me um that that's <laughs> just me being me so um, well it's great I very much enjoyed it well thank you I appreciate that <laughs> So when are we getting the next one? The one that you're working on right now? Is that about a year uh, away? I, well, I certainly will be done with a draft within a year. Uh, and then we'll just see where it slots in and, you know, the, 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 the time frame that Grand Central will prescribe. So, uh, and I, but, you know, I'm, 
I know what my own goals are. I haven't shared them with my editor yet because that will help me to it. <laughs> don't, don't worry, we won't tell them. <laughs> I, I hope there's a pretty good draft by the end of uh, by the end of June. So we'll see. We'll good see luck. how that goes. Yeah, thank you. Um, give us uh, some recommendations. Then we ask every writer that comes on for some, you know, can be fiction, nonfiction, but just something you've read in, recently that you've enjoyed that we should read. I'll tell you a book that just took hold of me from the first page. Um, and I think I'm objective about it. Um, Adrian and I made friends on a, a book jaunt um, overseas with, with Bill Landay and his wife, Sue. And, um, and Bill's the guy who wrote Defending Jacob. So he called me and said, you know, do you mind reading my new book? And it's called um, All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. Um, right. And, um, but it, you know, he knows that it's not a, a, a title that's going to fall trippingly off the tongue of readers. Um, but it's a terrific book. You know, it's a family book. It's a crime book. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's beautifully understated prose. Uh, and uh, I, I, I don't know whether lay readers will end up objecting to some of the narrative poses or not. Um, so um, we'll see. But I thought it was just a terrific book. Really a great book. Maybe because it's, you know, it begins with a, a paragraphs about writer's block. So, but uh, which every writer will, will be able to um, relate to, even if she or he has never quite experienced that. So this all that is mine, I carry with me. It's, it's William Landay, L-A-N-D-A-Y. Yeah. And um, right. if you're listening in the UK, you've got a bit of a wait because um, according to what I'm looking at, it's not out till March next year. I don't know if it's already out in the US or not. but It's not the- out. I read it in Galley. Um, I, sus- I don't know when it's coming here, um, but probably a few months before that. Uh, but I, again, it, to me, it was a great read. Um, and I recommend that. I'm also rereading... Uh, Endless Love by Scott Spencer, which was a book that just swept me off my feet when it was first published in 1979. And uh, I am enjoying it once again, although, um, you know, some of what I'm enjoying is looking back at myself and seeing the parts of it uh, that didn't matter to me then and matter to me now. Uh, but it's, it, I, I think, you know, and this, this novel has been filmed at least twice that I'm aware of. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't think a great movie has been made yet, but it's a really wonderful novel. And, uh, and I can recommend that unreservedly. And do you ever go back and reread any of your early books now? Or does that way madness lie? Uh, well, I have to reread them, you know, for example, if I'm writing about Rusty Savage again, mm. Uh, I, you know, I just need to re-familiarize myself with all of the, you know, the data from the earlier books. Um, but uh, generally speaking, I read my own work um, with a feeling of satisfaction. I, I would not say that I've read 
any of my books cover to cover without finding something in them to regret. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that, that's why you write the next book. Yeah. What, what do you do to solve writer's block? You mentioned it a moment ago. I, I have not been badly afflicted by it in the last 20 years, but my solution is to reread and begin rewriting what I've previously written, usually what I wrote the day before. Uh, and uh, that almost always primes the pump and, and gets me going. And uh, if it's not the work of the day before, then it's some other piece of the book, which will be um, nagging at me that I don't think was done even well enough for the first time through. Uh, and, you know, once you start rewriting, um, it's inevitable that you're you're writing and that, you know, you're figuring out what's going to come next. Do you still love it, Scott? Yeah, I really... Um, as I always say to people, if you can arrange to become a best-selling novelist, I really recommend it to you. It's, great. it's, a, it's a great life. Uh, and, and truly, without being saccharine, the best part of it is the work. Uh, and, you know, I always look at Adrian and say, okay, I'm going upstairs now to play with my imaginary friends. And uh, that kind of... Um, six-year-olds wonder uh, at being totally swept away uh, by a world uh, of my own imagining uh, is far and away the best part of the deal. It really is. And, uh, you know, the, my inner six-year-old never died. And, you know, he gets his way once I set my fingers to the, um, you know, the keyboard. Well, if you uh, the adage we adhere to is if you can't get to be a best-selling novelist, get to interview them. And we've really loved having you on, Scott. So yeah. thanks so much for taking Very time kind. for us. Very kind. Of, thank you. I've enjoyed my time with each of you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. All right. Adios. <laughs> You know what I really love about that chat at the end there with Scott especially was that he's unapologetic about it's a good life if you can make it yeah. work for you. I think, you yeah. know, we're under no illusions that becoming a best-selling author is hit and miss. Like there's no formula that's guaranteed for success. It's, you know, like any other industry really. Like obviously there's a lot of hard work, but there's so much luck involved in it too. Um, and so much, I think, with writing as well, if you've got the right people behind you and the support at the right time and all of that. But you know what? I'm happy for him that he's he's just really enjoying it and and kind of doing what you hope people would do when they get to And also level. reassuring that he said that he can write more quickly now, because you know the part where yeah. I was saying, I'm greedy, I want more of your books. <laughs> he's only done 13 books and you compare him, say, similar age to Michael Connolly or Lee Child and how many they've done. And he said, yeah, but um, I've got more prolific since I stopped working in law. And you think, oh, yeah, you had a day job. And it is, you know, that's your setup, isn't it? You've got several day jobs yes. and you're still trying to write. And it just shows how, how much harder it is. Yeah. And again, that's not unusual. I think so many really successful authors too mm. still have day jobs because mm. it doesn't pay to... well no, to be an author no. at all like the figures involved are not I think what often people assume they will be um obviously I, I haven't been paid anything yet for my writing still unpublished still writing um but that's been quite slow 
these last few months, but I am determined to keep going because I think so much of writing as well is just not giving up. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And and I think we maybe get sidetracked by a headline. You, you'll see a headline, might you, so-and-so, but we've done it ourselves, haven't we? we I remember, do you remember the woman we interviewed whose first book went for six figures? Laura Prescott. It was a, yeah, mm. there you go. You do remember. <laughs> and, um, and it was a major part of our conversation, wasn't it? And then I wonder if, Maybe we're part of that. Um, it's not misinformation because it's true, but I wonder if it creates this false premise that, oh, you can get six figures for your debut. When actually, I think the average advance is under 10 grand, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that's £10,000 that you get in three installments. So when you sign, when the hardback proofs get published, and then when the paperback comes out. So you're looking at, what, like three grand over sort of every right. four months for a year type thing. Right. Um so yeah, the figures are pretty small, but it doesn't make such a good news story, does it? But you're right. It should be, of course, it's exciting when people get six-figure advances, but more common is, yay, author gets like 500 pounds for a book. Woohoo! Put it this way. What we're trying to say to you is if you're doing it for the money, you'd be better off trying to enter the Phil and Holly wheel pay your energy bills competition on this morning. That would probably pay more. Yeah. And if you are doing it Again, it's not something that I have ever tried to do because I'm aware how depressing it would be. But if you, you know, did worked out an hourly rate for how long it takes to write a book versus how much return you might get if you get published, it's, um, yeah, not very much at all. <laughs> so what we're saying is we're doing this for the love. You're reading it for the love. And the exceptional few get to make a few quid. Correct. Um, so uh, you were saying at the start of this, you were going to say what else is on your to be read or TBR? Oh, yeah. So I just had a quick say. look. Um, so um, I've got a lot of memoir stuff going mm-hmm. on, which is not like me, but um, there have been some books that have really interested me. So uh, Jan Venner, who created and published Rolling Stone magazine in the States, his memoirs on my floor. I've started that and it's brilliant. I think I'd like and that. It starts book. off with dinner with John and Yoko. I mean, that's the starting point. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Tell me everything. Tell me all of that. So that's good. Um, do you know Kelly Ripper, who does live, well, did live with Regis and Kelly, yeah. and now it's live with Ryan, um, right? Ryan mm-hmm. and Kelly. Ryan Seacrest, yeah. Yeah. And I've got her memoir, Live One. Ooh, I would like that. You would. So I just, yeah, if you do like want that book, you have to go to .com to get it. Okay. It's not out here. Mm-hmm. So I had to import it. It's fine. It's quite straightforward to do, and it's not overly expensive, but... And that's how you get that book. Uh, That's called Live Wire, Kelly Reaper. If you're listening, Kelly, you want to come on, you're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what else have I got? Oh, yeah, the Alan Rickman Diaries, which um, I read a a serialization of in, I think, The Observer. I thought, yeah, that's really funny. He's a great dry writer Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and quite almost quite sneery at some of the things he has to do, some of the frippery that goes around acting, Yeah, which is really funny. Likewise, I haven't read that either, but I remember seeing a few of the extracts and also hearing about it when it was being published. And (laughs) all of the uh, words written in the run-up to that book coming out were like, Alan doesn't hold back. He's happy to name (laughs) whoever it is, Um, which I kind of like because often – you know, it's not that you want somebody to slag somebody off for no good reason, but also it can be frustrating when it's kind of veiled, you know, where they're like, oh, this one person I worked with one time. You're like, well, just tell us who it is and kind of, yeah. Yeah. Slightly easier to do when perhaps you're no longer with us. Perhaps indeed. Um, And I hope he's okay with his diaries being published. I'm sure he is. Um, I have got in that vein as well, uh, Paul Newman's memoir, that's sitting on my to be read pile too, which also sounds fascinating because I think it was something that he was working on for quite a long time. And he is very candid 
in that um and supposedly it presents uh, a picture that you may not be expecting of the legend the acting legend that is paul newman um and obviously his great sources too very good well um maybe we'll have made some reading progress next time we speak to you um and if not <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always christmas <laughs> there is but um before then if you've enjoyed this podcast then do uh subscribe if you haven't done that already do rate and review it on uh whatever platform you're listening to because it just helps with other people discovering it which would be great um because yeah just to reiterate we do this because we love reading and we love sharing what we learn when we speak to authors um, and we always find it really interesting so hope that you all do so thank you by the way just for listening Thank you.